Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy is a national brand, but its Amarillo store is independently owned and operated by the Hawkins family who live right here in town. And here's the thing, they offer a lot more than just recliners. Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings has a ton of products in stock ready to take home or deliver today. Go visit the showroom at 3636 Sansi. That's Lazy Boy of Amarillo at 3636 Sansi. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to First Bank Southwest, Gooden's Jewelry, Avant Garden, and Ruthette's Bridal. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com and look for our January-February 2024 issue, which just came out. It's on local newsstands, including United Supermarkets, Market 33, Burrowing Owl, Barnes & Noble, and a bunch of other locations. Today's guest is Catherine Wiegand, the president and CEO at the Mary E. Bivens Foundation, a nonprofit that was established in 1949 to support quality of life in the Texas Panhandle with a particular focus on the elderly and Christian ministers. And we talk about why the philanthropist Mary E. Bivens specifically wanted to honor those individuals. Now, Catherine has been in that position since 2018, but she served in some leadership capacity in the nonprofit world for more than 30 years. Catherine has also been a Canyon ISD board member since 2011, and so we have plenty to talk about, especially as we start a new year. Here's Catherine Wiegand. Catherine Wiegand, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. I'm excited. This is really fun. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I know that we've actually been discussing having this conversation for a long time, um, and we're finally able to do it, which I'm happy about. And I want to start with you the same way I start with all my guests and just ask why you're in this area to start with. So what brought you to Amarillo? I am blessed to be a native of the Texas Panhandle. I was born here in Amarillo. Uh, when I was younger, I was able to spend elementary and junior high in Dalhart, Texas. Okay. And so I'm blessed to have had a small town experience when I was younger, but then also graduating from Tascosa High School, which, you know, that large of a school offers uh, more opportunities, more classes. Mm-hmm. And so I can't imagine living anywhere except for the Texas Panhandle. And I appreciate all of it, the small town, the larger town. Um, I love all of it. Tell me about the circumstances going from Dalhart to Amarillo in your upbringing, because those are very, I mean, the people are the same, but they're very different communities. They are very different. So when I was younger, my dad received a promotion to manage um, a a place in Dalhart, and that was what moved us to Dalhart. And so was able to spend, you know, those those elementary years and, and junior high, especially where I wasn't the most graceful or the most coordinated, but I got to well, play. None of us were. I, you know, sure, but I I grew quickly. So I was tall okay. for a girl, mm-hmm. young, um, and so I was able to play basketball, and I loved basketball. But had I been in elementary and junior high in Amarillo, probably would not have happened for me. Okay. I had some of the most amazing teachers from Dalhart, uh, some of whom I've reconnected with uh, lately, one of them is is Mary Barker, who now works at Frank Phillips campus in Dalhart. 
And she was our gifted and talented teacher way okay. back, you know, when that was really yeah, just starting. I, I did that too. They didn't know what that meant exactly, but there was a group of maybe 12 to 14 of us that got to hang out together with her and, and just such a, a bright spot in our lives. And so getting to reconnect with her recently has just been amazing. So um, loved, loved the time in Dalhart. Was it hard as a teenager moving from Dalhart to Amarillo? And kind of starting over at a, a a period of transition, you know, for any kid. But uh, there's a little bit more to it when you're moving. Sure, sure. I'm grateful for the timing because I left Dalhart after eighth grade. So started school back in Amarillo in ninth grade. And at the time, ninth grade was still at the junior high. Okay. So I was so blessed in that I went from uh, Dalhart, uh, from Allen Finch Junior High School in eighth grade, and I had one year at the junior high level in Amarillo before I transitioned to Tasco. Okay, so you got to meet some people. Yes, and didn't have to. I've thought about if I had transitioned from Dalhart to Tascosa. I think that would have been a lot more difficult. And so um, Sam Houston Junior High was a great school and loved being there and loved the kids and and the teachers. And so that was a great transition. When it was approaching time for graduating from Tascosa, did you have any idea what you wanted to do at that point? So at that time, I I knew I was going to major in marketing. Uh, I'd researched a little bit, but I was going to be a buyer for Neiman Marcus. Okay. And that That's a was a very, my, very yes. specific career path. I was pretty sure. And, and uh, to me, that's really what marketing was all about. And then, um, so I started my, my first year of college was at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, my sister was working there at the time. And I wanted to go somewhere different where not a lot of my peers were. I just wanted kind of a, a new beginning. And that was the best thing that I could have done because. I matured so much mm-hmm. that first year. Um, and when I look back, I'm, I'm grateful that I had that time and, and I was able to make mistakes and have to do things on my own. And that was an amazing year. And then uh, went home that next summer and looked for a job and had a hard time finding a job. It ended up with, uh, I had a job offer from Calico County. Okay. And if, I don't know if they still use them, but you know, they had those big, huge round trays that Mm -hmm. were like as big as the moon and you carried like six or seven plates on them at a time. And I was really nervous about that. I thought, you know, wasn't really great at basketball. This is probably not going to be great either. And then my dad had a friend who worked at Sears and he said, I bet we can get you a job at Sears. And I thought that's probably the route for me. So I did. I went to Sears and and met the manager, and and she was the manager over uh, jewelry and shoes. And I thought, this is going to be great. Well, the job available was in hardware. (laughs) And so I thought, okay, okay, there's there's a reason for this. God God is in all of the plans. And so I was a cashier in the hardware department and uh, learned a lot. But, But I learned later the reason that God placed me in the hardware department at Sears was because my future husband, Steve, Worked in the hardware department okay. at Sears. How long did that job last at Sears? So I fell for him so hard that I did not go back to school at the University of Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, I kept working at Sears and enrolled at Emerald College. And so I spent my second year at Emerald College. And what a blessing that was. I was one of those who never considered Emerald College when I was graduating. Um, I wanted bigger things. I had some of my best classes and my best professors at Emerald College. Lunette Evitz, Reagan Hathcock, Dwight Huber. I mean, I can remember them. I can remember the classes. 
And I, uh, I learned so much from them and from my peers, the smaller classes. I would not trade that year at Emerald College for anything. We may have been there close to the same time because I also had them as, yes. as instructors at AC. Yes. Did you end up going on to finish your degree at a four-year? I did. I did. I finished that year at Emerald College and then uh, transferred to Texas Tech. Okay. And Steve and I dated long distance. I finished my coursework at Tech and moved back to Amarillo in September, started a new job, and we were married in December. Okay. So you didn't go back to Sears in Amarillo or Lubbock to uh, continue? I, actually, I did. I transferred. Did when I transferred to, to a Texas Tech in Lubbock, I transferred to the Sears store there. Okay. And it, I was a commissioned salesperson mm-hmm. in hardware and lawn and garden. So I was selling lawn tractors. I was selling miter saws. Um, it was a really interesting time of my life. That It's interesting to talk to somebody who worked in that field because that's so foreign to people right now. I mean, department stores like Sears don't really exist, at least not in Amarillo. Correct. The way they used to. Was that something you enjoyed? I mean, getting a commission for selling miter saws? Because Sears was a place everybody went to. It was before we had Lowe's or Home Depot. Everybody got their tools at Sears. Well, because of Craftsman. Craftsman tools had a lifetime warranty. So why would you buy any other tool um, I learned a lot. I'm very grateful for customers who were very patient because mm-hmm. I am, there was a big learning curve and uh, they were patient. And, and, and I'll be honest, there were some customers, especially in Lubbock, who would come into the department looking for a bandsaw blade or something like that. And they would see me and they would walk the entire rest of the department looking for a male salesperson um, who they would often find. But if not, they would begrudgingly come to mm-hmm. me. And nine times out of 10, I could find what they were looking for. But um, it was interesting to see that, that they really didn't expect that a female could yeah. help them find what they were looking for. But I lear- learned a lot about tools, uh, met a lot of fascinating people, and I- I'm grateful for that experience. So did you end up finding your way to Neiman Marcus? You know, I did not. Okay. Um, and it's interesting. I think once I arrived at Texas Tech and took some marketing classes, um, I realized there's so much fascinating work within marketing that has nothing to do with selling beautiful clothes at, at Neiman Marcus. And so as I was uh, approaching graduation, um, Steve was a couple of, of years ahead of me in school. So he had already, he was working for what was then SPS, what is yeah. now XL Energy. And so I, know, I knew then at that point um, that we were going to get married and that I needed to find something in, in the Amarillo area. And when I was in college, I was so blessed to receive financial aid from the Opportunity Plan in Canyon. I received scholarships and loans that didn't accrue interest while you're in school. And and that was just for my family. That really made college possible. As I was approaching graduation, you know, Texas Tech lined you up for interviews. And I'll never forget my first interview was with Mass Mutual Insurance Company. All right. And I thought, man, they dress cool. They, they look professional. They, I think I could do this. So I arrived at the interview, and they give you kind of a, a personality test, a skills test, you know, kind of ask you. It was really long. And so they said, we will call you back and once we've, we've looked at this test. And so they called me the next day, and they said, Catherine, you are in no way meant to sell insurance. <laughs> Thank you for coming to see us, but this job is not for you. And so I was crushed but they were so right. Mm-hmm. I'm not good at selling anything. Did you come to find out like what it was about your personality that keeps you from being a good salesperson? I mean, you had you had sold things at Sears. Yes, I had. I had. But I just, I'm not sure what it is. But it's interesting now that I'm also, I'm not good at asking people for help okay. or asking people 
I'm a better fundraiser now than I was in my early years and because I didn't understand that you're sharing needs with people that they can help meet if it fits their interests. I didn't understand that aspect of it until later. And so I, I think they're right. I think I think about Joe Bill Sherrod. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Joe Bill. But He's you know, been on the podcast, actually. Yes. So Joe Bill actually worked for Mass Mutual Insurance. Yeah. And Joe Bill's personality, he could sell insurance to a rock. He just, he's so outgoing and he's so friendly and you want to talk to him. And, and that just comes naturally to him. And I am naturally an introvert. And so when I engage with the public or, or speak to a group of people, I can do it and I enjoy doing it, but it is draining. And so I think as I've, I've become older and had more experience, I realize why that mm-hmm. was not the place for me and God had other plans. Okay, so I know you eventually found your way into the nonprofit world where you you are asking people for money, I, I presume. Tell me how that happened. Like, what was the path? Well, once Mass Mutual turned me down and I got over that, uh, that thing happening to me, um, it was actually Kathy Wright at the Opportunity Plan. She had been my advisor the whole way through college, had helped me get the wonderful scholarships, and she met me for lunch in Lubbock one day. She said, hey, do you have a minute? I want to take you to lunch. I said, sure. And she said, I need an administrative assistant. And I was just coming to see if you were interested in that. And I thought, wow, this is an organization that I'm familiar with. I know the benefit to students because I'm a direct um, you know, recipient of, of those, those benefits. This is a God thing. This is God giving me a path and showing me where to go. I didn't even know that it was a nonprofit, and I didn't know what that meant. But to me, it was just a great job and a great opportunity. And so I, I accepted that job, and, and it was it was such a blessing. I worked there 15 years. Okay. Started out as the administrative assistant. Um, second year, I was promoted to assistant director, and I was assistant director the, the other 14 years. And the people at Opportunity Plan, the, the donors who provided the funds for students to go to school— the board members, it was the most amazing place. And and what a wonderful place for me to enter the world of nonprofits and to see how uh, people coming together can pool their money and make life-changing differences for others. And so I know your career path has stayed primarily within the nonprofit world. Is that accurate? That Since is then, true. But yes. you've moved into to, to different worlds. Tell me about your job right now with Bivens Foundation. So how you sort of found your way to it, and then a little bit about why it exists. Sure, sure. So I really thought I would stay at Opportunity Plan my entire career. It was a great place. It was a wonderful, doing doing great things throughout the panhandle. And But I had become a member of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, mm-hmm. such an amazing group, and I learned so much. And that's where I first met Charlotte Rhodes. Okay. Charlotte Rhodes is a force of nature. And um, working with her on different committees with, through the fundraising professionals, I was just in awe of her. And so uh, during my 15th year at Opportunity Plan, she called me on the phone one day and she said, Catherine, I have a job at the Emerald Area Foundation and I want you to consider it. And I was blown away. I was comfortable at the Opportunity Plan. I enjoyed working with students. I'd never even thought about looking elsewhere. And so I I went and visited with Charlotte, and uh, the Area Foundation has a nonprofit service center that provides education and networking and things for um, nonprofit professionals. And they were looking to really revive that and and invest more in it and kind of uh, make it more than it had been. And she wanted me to lead that program. And I was taken aback. I... 
I thought, wow, I don't, I don't know that I have what it takes for this. I, that's such a big move. I'm very comfortable. But I ended up accepting that position, and it changed my life. And hmm. um, I just saw Charlotte Rhodes at a lunch today, and every time I see her, I give her a hug, and I tell her thank you. And um, she, working with Charlotte at the Emerald Area Foundation, she taught me about fundraising and developing relationships, but also the importance of strategic planning and board training and following all the rules that are there for nonprofits that I really didn't know about. So that transition, that was a leap of faith for me. I'm not a risk taker. Mm-hmm. I don't like change. But something in me knew that this was the path to go. If I had a chance to work with Charlotte Rhodes, I needed to take it. How long did your tenure last at the Area Foundation? I was at the Area Foundation for 12 years. And I was blessed to work with some amazing people. I ended up the last three years, I was vice president of community investment, okay. which is over all the, the foundation's programs. Um, and loved that work. Uh, just uh, challenging and and worked with some amazing people. And in the back of my mind, I thought about, you know, we were pretty, all of our family is pretty much here in the panhandle. Uh, I didn't really imagine living anywhere else. But I thought if if there was anything that would ever even make me think about leaving Area Foundation, it would be to be president of another foundation. Um, Clay Stribling, who's wonderful, and I, uh, Clay is still president and CEO of the Area Foundation. We are, are the exact same age. Yeah. So I knew that it was not going to happen at Area Foundation. But if, if it happened to come up somewhere else, that's that's what I would consider. And then lo and behold, Judy Day decided to retire from the Bivens Foundation much earlier than I thought she would. And I prayed a lot because I loved being at the Emerald Area Foundation. I love the people. I love the work. And so it was a big decision for me. Do I do I stay where I am, where I'm comfortable or again, do I make that leap and uh, challenge myself in a big way? Because at the time, the Mary E. Bivens Foundation was still operating a healthcare facility for seniors, and I had no background in healthcare. But I applied, and I was accepted. And what a momentous occasion for me that they had faith enough in me mm-hmm. to hire me and let me feel my way through this position. And that was five years ago. So. For listeners that don't know, tell people about the Bivens Foundation. I mean, they've heard of the name. The Bivens family has been part of the success of the Panhandle, you know, since Amarillo existed. Tell me why the Bivens family decided to start this foundation and then what its scope is, what it does. So the Bivens family um, history in the Panhandle really started with the first Lee Bivens Lee and Mary met each other. They grew up together in Sherman County, married, and Lee decided he wanted to look into wide open land, buying land. And so his first ranch was the Mulberry Ranch in Claude, Texas. And so he bought that that piece of land, left Mary and their two kids in Sherman County and moved here, lived in a dugout Hmm. um, until he had established himself and kind of uh, made some money and then brought Mary and and the two kids with him. And that's how the Bivens history started in the Panhandle. Um, And so he and Mary later moved to town. They built the beautiful house on Polk that was later the library and now where the Chamber of Commerce exists. And so Mary, I love the story of Mary. She, um, day to day, would give money to families in need, would give money to young men who wanted to attend seminary Hmm. and become preachers. That was just a way of life for her, is that she had the means, and she realized that she could make a difference um, 
for people who lived around her. And so later in life, um, Lee had passed away and she was getting older. She knew she needed to kind of leave some, uh, some instructions for what was going to happen when she was gone. So in 1949, she established the Mary E. Bivens Foundation. And there were two main things that she said at, at the very beginning. She wanted to continue supporting those who wanted to attend seminary and have a religious scholarship. At the time, it was for what she called pulpit preachers. Okay. So she wanted to send to seminary those who wanted to, to be pulpit preachers in the panhandle of Texas. Okay. Um, and the second thing was, and the, she, she debated, she couldn't decide whether she wanted to focus on the elderly or children, because both pulled at her heartstrings. But back in the late 40s, there were already some things developing to help children, and there really were not for the elderly. And so Mary made her decision that her foundation would provide enhanced quality of life for the elderly in the Texas Panhandle. And so the foundation started in 49, and it has continued over next uh, 2024, uh, it will be our 75th anniversary. Wow. So 75 years of uh, sending people to seminary. And today it's not just pulpit preachers. They still receive priority, but uh, women's ministry, children's ministry, college ministry, young adults, um, Christian counseling. Um, today, church is so much more and yeah. so many different things to reach the families of today. And so we can help many of those uh, areas flourish for those who want to study at seminary. And then um, still helping the elderly. We have facilities. We have independent living facilities. But then our community grant program with an emphasis on helping those who serve the elderly, but also uh, helping community nonprofits across the panhandle. So that brings up something that I've always thought was interesting. When you have these foundations that were established by you know prominent p figures in the past, so it will be Harrington, Mary E. Bivens, and they leave instructions and they say, here's a pot of money. I want this money to always be used to do these things. And I know the boards and the directors pay very close attention to the wishes of the founder. But again, things change. You know, what churches look like now change. And so how do you go about adjusting or evolving the scope of the use of those funds, um, knowing how it started and what the wishes of the founder were? Sure, sure. The blessing for us we have a nine-member board of directors, and two of those members are from the Bivens family. Okay. So we always have two family members and two members from the church that Mary helped found back in back in the day, and then five community members. And so this board, they're very thoughtful, and they look at, okay, what, what did the Panhandle look like when Mary established this foundation, and how has it changed? And with input from the family— that's what gave the board, I think what they felt was permission to expand, change the parameters enough so that we're utilizing the funds in a way that we think she would approve of as times have changed over the years. I wonder what that looks like today, because one of the things I appreciate about your foundation is that it does have a focus on the elderly population, and that still feels pretty unique. I mean, a lot of people start nonprofits that are helping children. A lot of people are helping families, but there still is not a lot that just says we want to reach, you know, this older generation. And I wonder what you've learned about maybe the the population um, of senior adults in Amarillo and some of the needs that they might have. 
Sure, sure. I will say that I think Amarillo and the Panhandle is so blessed because not only the Mary E. Bivens Foundation, but Baptist Community Services Mm -hmm. also has a focus on the elderly. And so to have two substantially sized foundations that are addressed to those needs is significant. But you have to balance that with uh, our older population is growing. The number of seniors um, and older people is growing more quickly than younger people. And so uh, there's still so many needs that are not being met. And for us, we know that the number is growing, that people are living longer. And one of the things that we focused on recently is senior hunger, Hmm. that there are so many seniors out there that they have to choose between do I pay for my medicine or do I eat? Do I um, do I eat or do I give half of my food to my dog who really uh, brings such quality of life to me? And so I share my food with a dog. Um, and so I'm not getting enough nutrition that way. And then also there's been a lot of, of recent research on food deserts and just the availability of healthy food. If you look at in rural areas of the panhandle, um, fresh fruits and vegetables, fresh meats, things like that. And so that is that is one of the main focuses of our foundation right now. We're grateful to Dyron Howell and Snack Pack for mm-hmm. Kids because he started working on this with the youth and realizing that so many of them were hungry. And he has set up this network of access to food products, name brand food products, at pricing that we could never have imagined. And so one thing that we're doing is we have piloted what we call the Bivens Market at our independent living apartments. And our foundation covers the cost of $60 in wholesale food for every one of our residents every month. So 120 residents have access um, to those food products and they go grocery shopping. We have a list of what Dyron has available through his distributors and they check off on the list what they want. And it's everything from fruit cups to frozen ground beef uh, to spaghetti sauce, yogurt, milk, Um, And also personal care products, Mm. toothbrushes, laundry detergent, things that if we can provide those for them, we think they have a better chance of paying for their prescriptions and other things that they need for overall enhanced quality of life. I have a feeling that senior adults living in poverty are one of those categories that people probably think of last. You know, we think of children, we think of families Um, And then we think of grandparents. We think, well, you know, they retired and they live in their house and they don't have too many expenses. The house is paid for. And um, that's not a category that comes to mind. And yet you you still have a lot of grandparents who maybe take in grandchildren and are raising them or they've lived longer than their savings, you know, has matched up to. And so that's a that's a part of Amarillo that, that maybe is forgotten a little bit. Is, is that accurate in the way I, I think about I it? I agree completely. And, you know, I, I think about some people who are seniors now put money back in retirement, but it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Some people who are seniors today didn't have the luxury of putting back in retirement. They, for their family, they kind of lived paycheck to paycheck and did okay, but now they don't have anything really to fall back on. Um, so I think, and, and you're right, the number of grandparents raising children is astounding. And Dyron has, uh, Dyron Howell has created a program, a Tilly's program through Snack Pack, where not only do the kids take home food from the school, but there's an extra bag for the grandparents if they're the ones raising the kids. Because grandparents are going to go without. Exactly. To so, give to their kids so or the to their pets or, or whatever. Eat. I mean, part of the, they're from a generation 
that did that on purpose. You know, yes. maybe w- during w- World War II or even uh, the Dust Bowl. Like they just learned to go without. That's how you got by. I, I always appreciate that kind of awareness, even as I see my own parents aging and, and think about their friends. I, I wonder if you could talk about Amarillo as a place where you are in the nonprofit world. You're you're in a position where I guess you're less focused on raising money, but in giving out money, which sure. sounds a lot of like a lot of fun. Sure. Um, but you're still dealing with so many nonprofits, and you're you're dealing with people and. Uh, are very close to the generosity of this region. And I, I wonder what you've learned about it. I think that's one of the reasons why I love the Panhandle so much and why it's hard to imagine living somewhere else. And if you if you grew up here and you've lived here your whole life, sometimes you don't realize the generosity of the people of the Panhandle is a little overwhelming. We'll go to conferences or talk to peers, and they just don't have the the families and the history of just giving and not only through your church, but to the many nonprofits that exist to increase quality of life. And I think when every year at the National Philanthropy Day luncheon that's held in November, um, it's my favorite event of the year because we have two of the most important ingredients for enhanced quality of life in a community. And the first one is those who are willing to sacrifice a portion of their time, talent, or treasure to benefit others. And that doesn't always happen. I think some people who have scraped along and are, are grateful for the, for the little that they have, sometimes it's hard to imagine giving up some of that mm-hmm. for other people. But we are so blessed that we have so many of those people who go without in some respects so that others can have more. And so it's crucial that we have those who are providing the resources. But at the same time, we have people who are good at telling the story of the needs of people in the panhandle. We have amazing fundraisers who don't always make a lot of money. They're not going to make a lot of money, but what they get back and knowing that they are making a difference in the lives of their fellow men helps to make it worth it. And so at National Philanthropy Day every year, we see those two groups come together and the fundraisers are honoring those who make the resources available. But I always want all the fundraisers to stand up and just have a moment of appreciation. Because if you don't have both of those, if one of those is lacking, it's going to be a totally different environment. So I want to close this section by asking about your own career. You know, you didn't end up a buyer for Neiman Marcus. You ended up in the nonprofit world for decades. And I wonder if you feel surprised that this has been your path, or if it feels like sort of a natural progression, a natural use of the things that you have ended up being good at? I have to say that the word that comes to mind as you're asking that question is, I am grateful. I am so grateful because I don't know that I would have, if I knew what a nonprofit was, I'm not sure that I would have chosen that path because it's not easy and it's not glamorous. But I think when you're that young and you're looking at it, you have no idea of what the blessing is that's going to come back to you. And so uh, people like Charlotte Rhodes and people like Bud Joyner, who's been a mentor for me my entire career, they're the ones who showed me the benefit of service to others and how important nonprofits are. And so I'm grateful every day. And I, one of my favorite things is interacting with nonprofit professionals who are 10 and 20 and 30 years younger than I am because I remember what it's like starting out and just to sit and have coffee with them and encourage them 
and tell them I'm so amazed at what they're doing and know that I'll get to watch what they're doing in their efforts and the benefit that's going to play in the years to come. One of the things that, that I've always thought about when I think about all the nonprofits in Amarillo and the, the fundraising that people do is that how much of that is based on relationships and how easy it is to have wide-ranging and deep relationships in a place like Amarillo, where if you want to, like almost everybody can have a connection to everybody else. Maybe there's only one person in the way of that connection. Have you found that to be true, that this is a place where nonprofits thrive because it's very much a relationship-oriented place? And it's small enough where those relationships are fairly easy. Definitely. I, I was just at a luncheon today, went with two of my fellow employees from the Bivens Foundation, and it, it was a, a women's lunch. And we were in line waiting to get our lunch. And one of the ladies I was with, I introduced her to a, a, a friend I know from Dumas. And the, the lady from Dumas said, oh, my goodness, are you related to Ron Inns from Dalhart? And my friend said, well, yes, that's my father-in-law. Hmm. And so that connection for someone from Dumas to meet someone from Amarillo and to have that connection, that connection is always there. And so if you're just willing to sit down and chat long enough to figure out what that connection is, it's powerful and it's beautiful. This week's episode is also supported by Wick Realty. I recorded every interview over the past year in my home studio. I'll likely record most of them this year in the same place. My family and I love our house. We love our neighborhood. We're here because Wick Realty helped us sell our previous home and buy this one. What I love about them is Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying or selling a home, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Okay, I'm back with Catherine Wiegand. Catherine, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and one of the things I love about it is its commitment to digital exhibits. When a temporary exhibit closes, the artifacts are always digitized for viewing on the website, so you can go see those at any time. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, I know this is something you spent time thinking about. When you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I hope it is the place of choice for young people in their 20s and 30s to plant roots, mm -hmm. to uh, find a job, to have a family, because I've had friends who recruit for local law firms and different firms, and it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to recruit people at Amarillo, mm -hmm. because if you look at the landscape, if you look at I-40 and you're just driving through, it, it may not be the most attractive um, I never thought I would live here the rest of my life. I was going to live somewhere glamorous and have all of these opportunities. But there is no better place to raise a family than Amarillo, Texas. And so I, I think we're getting better at, at sharing that story. But I want my sons to move back here and raise a family. And I want the 20 and 30-year-olds of the future to see this as a destination of choice. And. That, that brings me to a question I didn't even ask you during the first part, which is that you're also on the school board for Kenyon ISD. And so you are working with those kids and thinking about what are we providing for families? You know, what are future generations going to need? I wonder if you could tell me just a little bit like about, about that work, why you decided to run for school board in the first place and kind of what you've learned in the process there. So in 2011, uh, for the Canyon ISD School Board, there were two board members who decided not to run again. So two open spaces 
And that doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. I had served on a lot of nonprofit boards and done training and leadership things. And I thought, you know, I, I might I might be good at that. We specifically moved to be within the Canyon ISD school district because we wanted our boys to attend a, a smaller district. And so I went and talked to some people who I admired, some who, who had served on school board before, and asked them, do, do, you know, do you think this is right for me? And, and I was encouraged. And so I ran for school board um, against four other people. And uh, man, I was nervous. That was not natural for me. Um, but I was blessed to win that election. And so uh, this is my 13th year serving on the school board. And it's the hardest and most rewarding work I think I've ever done. Hmm. There's nothing more important than providing pathways for the students in our district and as many different pathways as we can think of, because these kids are so different in the way they learn and what they're passionate about and what they want to do after high school. And um, some will go to college, some will will get internships. So just to have these these multi-level paths um, and to have partnerships, one of my favorite stories is we have an alternative high school for students who maybe just need something different than your everyday normal high school. And there was a young man um, who was really struggling to finish his coursework and to, to graduate from high school. And uh, our district has developed partnerships with Pentex and Bell Helicopter. And this young man um, connected with Bell Helicopter, came to campus, and um, he signed up for an internship with Bell and ended up doing the internship and did well and flourished and ended up getting a full-time job offer from wow. Bell Helicopter after not really being sure that he was going to finish his high school diploma. That's the kind of thing that keeps me serving on the school board. That's a good job. That's a And that's a lifelong job. You know, that's a, a job that you can really thrive in. Yes. You mentioned that you you moved your kids to the Canyon School District because you thought it was a little bit smaller than Amarillo. And I wonder if that will always be the case. I feel like it's growing so rapidly because all the growth in Amarillo itself is is ending up in CISD. If if you think about it, you know, when you think of Canyon and that school district 10 years from now, will it continue to grow as fast as we think it's growing right now? Are you planning for that as a board or are those discussions you're having? We are. We are planning for that. One of our assistant superintendents, part of her job is staying in contact with all the developers. And she has a map of all the platted land and where developments are are in the planning stages and what that might look at. And that's what led to our bond request in 2018 um, that was thankfully approved by the voters to build two new elementary schools and the new high school. Yeah. So West Plains High School is in its second year of operation and it's already, an amazing facility. Like, yes, it's beautiful. I would almost go back to high school. If, if that's I what I kept thinking. I was like, I wish I had gone to high school here. Um, but the amazing thing, in its second year, West Plains now has more students than Randall High School and Canyon High yeah. School. So to me, that's just the direction that growth is happening. Um, and so we're planning you know, to make sure that we have the space and the, the excellent teachers and administrators um, to keep up with that growth. Okay, let's go back to the eighth straight. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? This was a hard one. This really made me think. But but when I look at um, the next door post and the neighborhood post, we have too many abandoned and unwanted animals. Yeah. So many times your next door app is about, and I'm so grateful because it makes it so much easier to find your lost pet. But that that real, I'm an animal lover, and that concerns me. And so I'm I'm so grateful for those ways of, of finding your pets and communicating out, but also nonprofits like Gracie's Project, who 
uh, pulls animals out of the, the shelter and gets treatment for animals found on the street, um, but also Pets Clinic, which provides low-cost options for spaying, neutering, and microchipping. And so if, if we can just promote those three things more, support those nonprofits and many others like them, we just need to control our animal population yeah. better and try and alleviate the number who are lost. I don't, I don't know why or, or if the problem that we have in Amarillo is different from problems in other cities the same size or if ours is worse. It just it feels like there are like in my neighborhood. It's cats. There's stray cats all over this neighborhood. Um, and I, I always just wonder, like, why? That it's because of decisions that were made 10 or 20 years ago or cultural things like I, I don't understand it, but it seems to be a bigger problem than we know how to fix right now. I agree. I agree. So I'm, I'm grateful for the low cost spay and neuter at Pets Clinic. To me, that's that's meeting it up upriver. Okay. If we can get more animals spayed and neutered so that we're not having unwanted litters, I think that's part of the answer. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? This was hard because I think we I think we're fantastic and we're great. But I thought about what is it that I or friends of mine, what what is it that we have to wait for or we don't have access to? And it's it's some medical care. Okay. Some medical specialists. The the one that I really thought of first was a dermatologist. I, my husband and I went to Seattle and I did a little light trekking into a forest area, nothing serious, got back in the car, came home. Had a rash on my leg. Hmm. No clue, you know, where it came came from. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll go to the dermatologist. He'll look at it. It was a four-week wait to get to the dermatologist. And that was for a rash. That's yeah. not, a, you know, I've, I've slapped cortisone on it. it. It was fine. But for people who have serious needs and for skincare, we don't have enough dermatologists. And then it gets more serious from that. Um, I know someone who needed to have a cardiac specialist um, do some tests and run some tests. And that doesn't happen in Amarillo. He was sent to Lubbock. And if a procedure happens, that procedure is not going to happen in Amarillo. Yeah. Another example is, is our foundation, an area foundation funded um, a geriatric oncologist. So someone who specializes in seniors who have cancer because it's so hard to you know navigate that whole experience. We can't recruit a geriatric oncologist to Amarillo. Hmm. So that's, I would love to see more specialties have a presence in Amarillo. And that's always interesting for me to think about because I think about Amarillo as being a medical hub. Exactly. You know, people from Dalhart or Dumas will come here for care. And then we think, oh, how terrible that must be. They have to drive two hours and then spend time for procedure. But that does happen for Amarillo residents who have to go to, sure. you know, Cooks in uh, the Metroplex area or you know, MD Anderson or something like that because of the lack of specialties here. And that is something that I would hope that will improve as our population improves. It becomes more attractive to those young doctors. But yeah, it's something that we don't think of as often. Okay. Other than your own nonprofit, what's one local nonprofit you personally appreciate? You've named some pet related ones. Are, sure, are there others? Sure. Man, this is a hard one because we have so many fantastic but when I thought about a nonprofit that truly moves the needle and changes quality of life, I have to talk about Heal the City. Hmm. Heal the City that provides free medical care for the uninsured in our community. And, and you see the stories. Uh, it, last year, they served more than 2,600 patients who otherwise had no place to go. And they can, they can go there and they can get both acute care for things that just pop up that they don't know how to handle, but also long-term care in their, in their Shalom program, medicine management, prescriptions, dental care. 
you know, I, their intention was for this to be uh, a service for the San Jacinto community. And there are people driving hundreds of miles yeah. to come to this free clinic. And so uh, kudos to Alan Keister and his team of amazing people and board members who recognize the need and have grown that program into something that is truly life-changing and I hope is replicated all over the U.S. Okay, so what's your favorite local coffee shop? Okay, this is an interesting question for me because I really don't drink coffee. Okay. Um, but coffee shops are really important to go and meet people and chat. And so I have to say Palace for two reasons. Number one, they always have a wonderful uh, fruit-flavored iced tea, which okay. is my favorite. That's so it's often peach. It can be raspberry. But I walk in and they know pretty much I'm going to order probably an iced tea. But also, Palace is so great about supporting local nonprofits. Yeah. They often have a cause of the month. And if you buy their special latte or whatever it is, part of those proceeds go to that nonprofit. And so I like them for two reasons. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? This one was really pretty easy for me. Well, actually, okay. So I have to say breakfast or brunch, I'm going to say Girasol. Okay. Uh, lunch or dinner, I'm going to say OHMS. Okay. And really the same reason for both. The products, the the food and produce they use is so fresh and flavorful. It's just, I think, the best food in town. And Garisol, it's so hard to get in there. And I, I keep hoping they'll expand and have more seating because the demand is just amazing. And OHMS, I love that you can have two experiences. You can go at lunch and go cafeteria style and yeah. pick quickly. And it's fantastic food. Or you can go in the evening and have probably one of the best culinary expenses of your life in the exact same building. Yeah, I agree. I love that about OHMS. They've been doing it that way for a long time. And I love Gearsall, you know, which is still relatively new. A lot right. of people haven't discovered it. Um, okay, what's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? I think culture and the arts. I think those of us who live here, I think many of us live here, we have an opera we have a community theater. We have a ballet. We have a symphony. It is really amazing. Uh, we have the Emerald Art Institute. We have art walks. And we have things that really rival, I think, Oklahoma City and other places. And to me, that shows uh, the quality of our residents. It's, it's important for them to have this well-rounded experience. And we're going to have culture in Amarillo, Texas. And our community theater productions, I would rival them against any yeah. across the U.S., and the same for opera and symphony and ballet. It's just, um, there's so much here. You just have to peel back a few layers and enjoy it all. Okay, and final question. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? I actually had to go ask my son, Mark, uh, who just turned 25, uh, because the last time we were out there was for his birthday with friends, and they went and spray-painted the ranch. And I had to go ask him uh, when that was. Well, it was his uh, birthday in 2011. Okay. So I have not been out there since 2011. Okay. Well, I mean, that that's not surprising. Not not a lot of locals go out there. Although if you do, you're going to see a whole bunch of people from yes. out of state. Yes. Okay. Well, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you, you would like listeners to know about or to experience? I would just say if you are not involved in some way with a local nonprofit, if you do not give a little bit of your time talent or treasure to a local nonprofit, I would love to take you to coffee. And let's just talk about what are you passionate about? What did you experience growing up that you'd like to share with others? And I can connect you to a nonprofit mm -hmm. because that's what makes the panhandle work. 
Um, and so sometimes it's hard to know, oh, I don't know where to go or how to get involved. Um, I can help you with that. And so I would invite anyone who, who is not involved in some way, uh, let's do that. Let's find a, a place for you to become involved. I love that. I, I really think a lot about my kids' generation, the generations right behind me, you know, younger people. Because every board I've been on, nonprofit board, tends to be a lot of retired people, you know? And so the the support is very, very strong, but like how long will that last? How long will they have the energy to do that? And I, I want younger generations involved in these kinds of things. And so I appreciate anybody who's like, yeah, come come on, let's do that. Let's get you involved. I will buy you a cup of coffee or some flavored fruit tea. Yeah. Um, and we will find a place and you will love it. You, it will it will benefit you as much as it does the nonprofit. Catherine Wigan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Jason, thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Catherine for the interview. You can learn more about her work at BivensFoundation.org. Thanks also to Lazy Boy Home Furnishings, Wick Realty, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting this podcast, and to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because people listen to it. Can't tell you how much it helps me keep doing this week after week because I know there's an audience for it. So thanks for listening. And I also want to thank the local people who support it financially through Patreon.com slash Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 334. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>